Music and murder contains violence, oh. profanity, oh. and graphic material that may not be suitable for children oh. or people with weak stomachs. Oh. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. You know, when I first began this podcast shit on June 2nd, 2021, pretty much two and a half years ago, I said, man, just imagine if it works out. I can have an episode 26, and that at the time was almost as cool as having like 26 recorded songs all over the internet and radio, and now I have both. Thanks, of course, to all of you. You are my life. Whether or not you just like my music or this show or neither, and you just listen to try to catch me slipping so you can talk shit, it's all the same. You guys inspire my life and you give me a reason to get up in the afternoon. One thing about me is if you ever see me up around 8 a.m. or before, I'm either still up from the night before or I'm going to court. However, I would like to point out that I sleep late because I'm up all night working on this shit. Before you start to think, oh no, this episode is about Ed Kemper and everyone knows everything about him, just let me assure you that you are half correct. Ed Kemper was always going to be my episode 26, even before I officially began this podcast, because 26 is my favorite, and he is my favorite serial killer to study. However, nobody really knows Ed Kemper like I do, unless they've interacted with him personally, which I have not had the pleasure to do just yet. But I did live just five miles away from the state middle institution in Atascadero, where he was housed for about five years. You will learn things today about who, in my mind, is the honest-to-God most interesting person in the world of serial killers. I know some of you are muttering Dahmer right now, and I say you're terribly mistaken. Dahmer was a closet homosexual with no people skills who killed 100% of the time for companionship, and he was heavily intoxicated every single time that he committed a murder. I don't care what Netflix says, they got the overall facts right, but Jeff drank a lot more than they portrayed, and he did have a split personality, and the biggest fear of abandonment that any psychiatrist has ever witnessed, which is also why he drank so much. Now, Ed Kemper is by far the most dangerous living creature that I've ever encountered. Unpredictable and as evil as evil can get. He was diagnosed with mental ailments such as psychopathy and basically whatever he wanted to be diagnosed as because he was usually more intelligent than any of the psychiatrists that evaluated him. He was also misogynistic as fuck. He hated women so much that he not only killed his blank, but he also killed his blank. And we will fill in those blanks very soon. Oh, and his first two victims were two female Fresno State students. So being that I'm alumni as fuck over there, maybe I am a little biased, I don't know. But episode 26 is going to be an amazing episode. 
the best episode that I've ever done. Let me just also throw out there that for the after discussion, I will be interviewing internationally known tattoo artist Ron Earhart. Ron doesn't really do interviews much, so this is a real treat. We will also get to hear a couple songs from his Christian band. Just a little joke for any of you that know anything about Mr. Earhart. Okay, so like a dirty little whore's pink panties, we are off and ready for business. Episode 26, the Edmund Emil Kemper episode begins right here, right now. There's no place that I'd rather be. By the way, whatever happened to Jesus Jones after that song? And more importantly, who gives a fuck? that leads into that happening but that is what happened they represented not what my mother was but what she liked what she coveted what was important to her and I was destroying it why did you actually kill the girls my frustration my inability to communicate socially sexually I wasn't impotent but emotionally I was impotent I was scared to death of failing in male-female relationships. I knew absolutely nothing about that whole area. Even if just sitting down and talking with the young lady. I need to be able to really communicate, and ironically enough, that's why I began picking people up. And I'm picking up young women. And I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of a thing. At first, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out, and I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car, hidden. And this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides. This fantastic passion. Uh, It was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is. And as you adjust to that, psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. It's the same process. So it finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out? Already realizing if that gun comes out, something has to happen. It was going to happen. I didn't see it then, but it was going to happen. I was playing a dangerous game with a loaded gun that got us all. The person known to have the highest IQ in the world is a boy named Michael Kearney who became a University of South Alabama College professor at the age of 10. The person known to have the lowest IQ in the world is Michael D. Keeney, who is still trying to get a job someday before he dies, but he's always too busy working on this podcast, so we'll see what happens. So what do IQ scores in human beings actually measure? Intelligence, right? Well, it is a little more complex than that, Let me ask you listeners with a high IQ, what does IQ stand for? Oh man, like none of you? Not even the dude who runs the meat department at Vaughn's on Portland and Grand? Well, okay then. So IQ stands for intelligence quotient. And what this test actually measures is one's capability to think logically and rationally, thus making an accurate prediction of outcomes. 
Intelligence is a much broader term. Memory and talent of sorts could be construed as intelligence, whereas intelligence quotient, it is more of the act of thinking and figuring out how to solve problems of all kinds. Here's a good example if you still don't follow me. A lawyer may be intelligent and an amazing lawyer, but they may have an average to low IQ score. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, who has the second highest confirmed body count in American history, actually had a low IQ score, but somehow he still outwitted the police for many, many years. IQ tests just test your ability to reason and think, but that does have much to do with intelligence, does it not? Despite what the deal is with Gary Ridgway, it would definitely help you if you have a high IQ if you were to decide to, I don't know, say, become a serial killer. Now, when you really think about it, being a serial killer does actually take a lot of intelligence. You have to outwit the people you murder, the police, forensics, cameras, your friends, and jury if you get caught. I mean, murdering people is not for idiots. Just ask many of the long-term inmates in most prisons. Individuals who possess a low capacity for thinking should probably just stick with spree killing. And trust me, most of them do. Any idiot can shoot up an, an event or an establishment or a school, and most of those people are fucking idiots. And they're spineless cowards on top of that. If you ever thought about doing something like that, just to get your 15 minutes of fame, please just kill yourself. Because if you go kill a bunch of people, you'll just go down in history as a worthless coward and a fucking twat and nothing more. People have been there and done that and now it's just a redundant cliche. Or even worse, you could be remembered as an incel. And my God, if I have any of those listening, let me just say, you really should kill yourself either way. To hate women just because women realize you're a fucking gross, worthless little dick pile of nothing makes you all of those things and more. Fuck all incels. Or actually, don't. They're disgusting keyboard gangsters that will jerk off to real men fucking women, but never ever be able to really touch one. Anywho, so why all this boring ass talk about serial killers and intelligence, right? Well, I am very much into studying intelligence and the ability to study it accurately. And more importantly, Ed Kemper, the serial killer that we're discussing today, has one of the highest IQ scores out of any serial killer, at least the ones that have been caught. Most college professors could not keep up with his intellect. And Ed, rather than go the route of good benefits, tenure, and decent money and summers off, just to grade a bunch of people and make or break their lives like most college professors, Ed decided to become a serial thrill killer which means that Ed really got the most pleasure from just killing his victims. Kemper's IQ was a whopping 145, and the average IQ score is about 100. Ted Bundy's was actually 136, which is also pretty damn high. Now before I start getting a bunch of bullshit messages from my Wikipedia happy listeners, let me stress that Ed Kemper most definitely did not possess the highest IQ of all serial killers. Serial killer Ted Kaczynski, aka the Unabomber, who was a mathematical genius, had a higher IQ score than Albert Einstein, with a whopping 167. 
and a female serial killer named Charlene Gallego, who was one of the most ruthless perverted bitches that I've ever encountered in my life, had an IQ score of 160. Yeah, she was a very, very intelligent evil bitch. But the average IQ score overall for serial killers is about 94, which makes them mostly on the bottom end of being average for the most part. Which pretty much solidifies that intelligence does not seem to be a good indicator of whether or not someone possesses the will to kill. Think about this. Tens of thousands of people go missing every year just in America. So how many really, really smart serial killers are still out there that haven't been caught? 94 is the average IQ for serial killers, but only serial killers that have been caught, right? You see what I'm saying? Perhaps there are thousands of really intelligent serial killers that have yet to be caught because they're just too intelligent and too calculating and they have too high of an IQ to be caught. Furthermore, maybe, possibly, they actually hide in plain sight by hosting podcasts about serial killers. Hmm. Okay, getting back to Kemper and his love affair with the act of killing in itself. Now don't get me wrong, Kemper did decapitate his victims, and he did have sex with their severed heads, and he definitely did other really bizarre things, but more than anything, Kemper loved to just shoot them in the head, watch them die, and become his new plaything. Kemper is, and I say is, because he is still alive, Kemper is an incel. He hates women because they turned him down and his mother embedded into his head that no decent woman would ever have anything to do with him. Thus, Kemper took away their freedom of choice and made them unable to turn him down. You will hear a few clips from Ed himself during this episode, as you've already heard one, and more than the grotesque things that he is saying, I really want you to focus on his articulate manner in which he speaks, his matter-of-factness, his ability to just remember every detail and feel absolutely no emotion for his victims whatsoever. It's like he's explaining a math assignment to a classroom or something. Now this is not new for many serial killers, but they usually talk a little more slow and kind of second guess what they're saying, or they're just trying to sound tough. Either way, there always seems to be an agenda when they speak, but with Kemper, it's just regular everyday talk. He has nothing at all to prove, hide, or deny. He just throws it out there, the way that it is, because this man can make you believe anything that he wants to. He's done it to many psychiatrists, and to this day, still does it on a regular basis. And he really does portray himself as being a super nice guy. Here's a little clip, again, just to get to know him a little bit better. It was getting easier to do. I was getting better at it. I was getting less detectable. I started flaunting that invisibility, severing a human head, two of them, at night, in front of my mother's residence, with her at home, my neighbors at home upstairs, their picture window open, the curtains open, 11 o'clock at night, the lights are on, all they have to do is walk by, look out, and I've had it. And so it began. And when it did, 
Edmund Kemper was younger than any serial killer that I've ever studied. He was only 15 years old when he killed his paternal grandparents. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California, which is where the sound company LA Sound resides. And Dave Phillips, who makes pretty much every rock star's pedal board, made my last setup last February. Dave is good. Look him up if you need a custom pedal board and you have an extra five grand sitting around. So Kemper's parents pretty much hated each other. Kemper's mother had a very unique name. Her name was Clarnell. Kind of like the college Cornell, but Clarnell. Though Kemper had two half-siblings, he was Clarnell's only child. From what Kemper says, and his father also said, Clarinelle was a pretty fucked up woman, very wicked, very mean. She really liked to give her opinion all of the time, and her opinions were allegedly not very nice ones. Her opinion of her only child, Edmund, was that of disgust and regret. He was a constant reminder of her miserably failed relationship with Kemper's father and she made sure that he knew it every day that he was alive. Somehow though, Clarinelle always let Ed right back into her home and always made sure that he had a place to live. And she took care of him for the most part because as intelligent as Kemper was, he wasn't resilient enough to take care of himself. Also, I believe that she really didn't care too much about Kemper killing his grandparents when he was 15 because it was the parents of his father, Edmund Jr. And deep down inside, there was probably a part of Clarnell that was a little happy that he did it because Clarnell also did not get along with them either. She should have learned from that event, but she didn't. In fact, even with Kemper killing his paternal grandparents, she still didn't see what a fire he was as she poured gasoline all fucking over him. And once they reunited after he was released from the Atascadero Mental Hospital, after he was evaluated and deemed safe to re-enter society at the age of 21, he spent almost six years at her home. We will definitely go into way more detail of Kemper's childhood and the killing of his grandparents right after this song from tattoo artist Ron Earhart's band Symbiotic, in which he is the drummer. And this song is called The Unknown. Be right back. Yeah. 
Okay, and once again, that was Symbiotic with the Unknown. That is Ron Earhart's band, and he will be our after-discussion interview for this episode. Please stick around for that. I anticipate it's going to be very, very good. Ron is an amazing person, so you definitely want to hear the interview. It should, it should go really good. Now, I am your host, Michael D. Keeney. We have an Instagram page called music underscore murder underscore podcast. That's where I do all my correspondence for the show. So please follow the show and please message me if you feel like it. Okay, so I have, before, before we go any further, I have an email from Joe Exotic that I would like to read to you because it's important to him. So I want to make sure to read it. So here it goes. Dear Keeney. He loves to call me by my last name like a fucking football coach. Dear Keeney, it's been a long, dark few months. And I'd, and I'd like, like to, to say, say that, that I'm making progress with my internal issues as well as my depression and anxiety from not finishing what I started with killing Carol Baskin. I've had a lot of time to think. In fact, it's the only thing I have anymore. We've had a lot of good times on your stupid fucking show, and I do miss those days. The two idiots in here listen to your stupid fucking show, say that it sucks dick without me, and I was the best motherfucking thing that ever happened to it. Now they are part of my new prison gang, the TK Brotherhood, so they kind of have to suck my dick, and I do mean that literally, but still. No, I'm not writing because I want to be part of your stupid motherfucking show again, but I kind of am. It's confusing. I'm like a methed out enigma, you know? Enigma, whatever the, whatever the fuck you call it. We can discuss it, but for now, I just really want to let you know that I'm doing okay and I'm making progress. And I do still have fantasies about killing Carol motherfucking Baskin and leaving a crime scene like Danny Rowley. You know, I would decapitate that motherfucking cunt-licking, cock-sucking, motherfucking dyke-ass twat. I would place her fat fucking head overlooking her gutted body. Only thing is, I really don't know how I'd cut through her fucking neck because bitch ain't even got a motherfucking neck. And I sure as fuck wouldn't rape her. Not only am I gay, but even if I wasn't, that bitch would be the last motherfucking thing in the world I'd ever consider fucking. Worthless motherfucking cunt. Slayer should write a song about that bitch and just title it, Fat and Dead. Sounds like a motherfucking good song to me, Fat and Motherfucking Dead. Anyway, I do think I'm making progress, and my gang is getting new members and spreading like wildfire. I really think I'm almost powerful enough to have people killed on the outside now. I just need a few more soldiers to be released so we can recruit and build. Maybe I'll call sometime. I do miss her conversations. And by the way, you, you do know I still have to kill you, right? It's just business. It ain't nothing fucking personal. Prison politics are complicated, motherfucker. You promised you'd come back as a ghost and do an episode on it, so I hope after I kill you, you still do that shit. Well, okay. I hope you're doing good, and I would like to apologize in advance for murdering you in the future. Your friend in prison fucking gang shot caller Joe motherfucking exotic. TK Brotherhood forever, motherfucker. Kemper had two half-siblings via his father. They were both girls. He had an older sister named Susan Huey Kemper, who was about five years older than him, and he had a younger sister named Alan Lee Kemper. And Alan is spelled with a Y. 
Alan is still alive as this show is being recorded and put out in November of 2023. She is currently 73 years old. Kemper's older sister Susan passed away about 10 years ago in 2014. Now, Alan was the first defense witness at Kemper's adult trials, and her and Kemper did have a pretty decent relationship, all things considered. Violence and ruthlessness really did seem to emanate from this very terribly dysfunctional family, though. When Kemper was just four years old, his older sister Susan pushed him in front of a speeding freight train. But lucky for him, he was able to jump out of the way just in time before the train cut him into pieces. And later when he was around 10, she pushed him into the deep end of a 10 foot deep swimming pool, knowing damn well that he did not know how to swim. Susan was laughing at him when he almost drowned and continued to laugh as he was being resuscitated and her laughing was the first thing that young 10 year old Kemper heard after another family member had to jump in the pool and save him and he was unconscious for about 20 seconds. Are you kind of starting to see any reasons that he could have turned out to be a misogynistic serial killer yet? Kemper did acquire a pretty decent relationship with his World War II veteran father, Edmund Jr., when Edmund was around. But for the most part, Kemper was surrounded by women that wanted him dead, or wished that he was aborted before he was even born. Kemper's best relationship with any female was with his sister, Alan, as I said. Who, by the way, I mean, not that it matters, but who, by the way, is a very pretty lady and that was not very prevalent in that family for some reason. Now let's back up to the very beginning, and I mean the very beginning, when Kemper was born. Kemper was born December of 1948, and he weighed just over 13 pounds. How many of you ladies out there have ever had to push out a 13 pound newborn? Okay, so that makes about two of you out of almost 100,000. Kemper was not just ginormous as a newborn, he was super huge his whole life. When he was in sixth grade, he was taller and all around bigger than every teacher at his school. Not just the other students, the fucking teachers. Just imagine that for a second, because back then, almost every school in America had the legal right and authority to enforce physical punishment by way of paddling. It wasn't just for kinky sex and sororities, like it is today, right? I remember getting paddled like 10 different times, and one time in junior high school, this little sawed-off motherfucker named Panarelli beat me so hard that my entire ass was black. Now my point besides the fact that the world hasn't only changed, but it is actually an entirely different planet now, is that Kemper was bigger than any of his teachers by the time he was 12. That was likely a little intimidating for the teachers, I would think, but then again, maybe not. Because if you weren't a woman who was related to Kemper, or a woman that he wanted to decapitate and have sex with, he portrayed himself as a very, very gentle giant, right? Kemper was complicated, and he killed for many reasons. But when it came to being an evil human, he did possess many of the traits that most serial killers do possess, which is being sadistic towards animals. And somehow, this behavior usually goes towards poor little defenseless fuzzy cats. 
I have no clue why it's always cats. Other than sadistic people just want to destroy beautiful things, and cats are beautiful. I have a theory that the world is actually ran by cats, and your afterlife will be a product of how you treat animals, especially cats. I've said it before, and I will say it again, I have never in my entire life met a decent human being that treated animals like shit. And I don't mean hunting or anything like that, I mean hurting animals for no reason other than to just hurt them. Think about the people you've seen hurt animals for no reason, and you will realize that this theory is correct. If you hurt animals just to hurt them, you are a piece of shit. So Kemper is a piece of shit who hurt many animals. The two that are documented on most everything that you read about him are the times that he buried a cat alive when he was 10 and the time he killed the family pet cat because the cat didn't like him. Because cats aren't usually that dumb. They are a very good judge of character, right? So good for that cat for not liking Kemper, bad for that cat for being killed by Kemper. Pieces of that family cat were found in Kemper's closet when he was 13. The cat that Kemper buried alive was later dug up by Kemper and decapitated, and Kemper didn't only kill those two. Kemper killed many cats, and likely other animals too. But okay, you get the point. Let's move on because I cannot stand discussing animal cruelty. I don't think animals are more important than humans. I just think that they are so vulnerable, so trusting, that it just fucking kills me when people destroy their innocence and their desire to just be loved because that's really all they want, right? Now Kemper didn't only enjoy killing these cats, he also took a lot of pleasure into watching his family look for the cat that he killed when he was 13. He relished in the fact that they were looking all over for a cat that he knew was already dead and he was the only one that knew this. It was like his own personal little secret. And this little secret of his actually put him in control for once. Meaning that he himself, this little rotten good-for-nothing boy who never had any power, was now making his family walk around in fear looking for the cat. Which to him was getting his cake and eating it too. Kemper later reminisces on how much he loved going to the jury room, which was a cop bar in Santa Cruz, a bar that I've personally been to many times, and listening to the cops talk about how this crazy assailant was out there killing people, what he looked like, and all of that stuff. Kemper loved to be the center of attention, even when that center of attention was anonymous. He just loved the power that he had when he was able to make people do things. So again, Kemper is in control and finally making things different. He was important. He never in his life mattered, and now he does. It reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite movies of all time, from Batman 3, where Tom Hardy, who's playing the evil sinister character Bane, says, No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. So when Kemper watched his entire family flip the fuck out while they were looking everywhere for the cat, he put on his mask and suddenly people cared. This was a feeling that Kemper became immediately addicted to and there was no turning back from this control ever again. 
Even when Kemper gets arrested, both times that he gets arrested for murder, it's on his own terms. It's under his control. He was never caught. He would never ever let that happen. He always controlled the situation and he was never ever scared to take control of the situation. After pieces of the dead cat were found in Kemper's closet and a few other undelightful events took place, Kemper was then sent to live with his father's parents in North Fork, California, which is just 45 miles north of Fresno, where I grew up. It was there in North Fork that Kemper would decide to graduate from killing animals to killing people. Kemper had a temper. I'm sorry, I had to, I had to really do that. Um, Kemper had a short fuse, especially when it came to women bullying him. On August 27th, 1964, when Kemper was 15, he was taking out his 22 caliber hunting rifle to go kill things, mainly birds. And his grandmother, 66-year-old Maudie, told him that he better not be shooting any birds. So Kemper decided to listen to Grandma and not shoot any birds that day. He slowly walked towards the front door like he was going to walk out. And once Maudie turned her back on him, he pointed the rifle at his own grandmother and he shot her four times. And then he picked up a kitchen knife and stabbed her a few times. During interviews, Kemper stated that he had thoughts of undressing her and exploring her in a sexual manner. This is his grandmother. But he talked himself out of it because the idea seemed too perverted. Kemper then hid outside and waited for his 70-year-old grandfather Edmund Kemper Sr. to show up. He then shot Edmund Sr. and killed him as well. Kemper stated that he only did this because he knew that his grandfather would be very upset with him for killing his grandmother. Kemper always referred to his grandmother Maudie in interviews as that old bitch. After killing both of his grandparents, he then phoned his mother to tell her what he did and she told him to call the police and tell them what he did. For these murders, Kemper was sent to the Atascadero Mental Hospital for six years until he was released into his mother's custody at the age of 21. Now this is my favorite song to do live and the most truest song that I think I've ever written. It is called Alcohol and Women. And if you don't like it, just push the forward button a couple times. I'll be right back. like a fine wine Sophisticated but still blows my mind Yeah, and she gets me But I lose control when her love hits me But some things are just worth dying for Yeah, them things leave you wanting more Alcohol and women They make life 
Self-inflicted Cause some things are just worth dying for Like alcohol and women They make life worth living And they always make you feel so free Oh, and somehow I know They're gonna be the death of me Alcohol and women Yeah Alcohol and women Some things are just worth dying for In the intro of this episode, I stressed the fact that I did not want this to just be another redundant Ed Kemper episode. However, just really fast, I need to throw out there that Ed did cut the heads off of his little sister's Barbie dolls, and he did put like tape on them to make it look like they were tied up. He did hang them. He did mutilate them. This behavior began when he was just five years old, and it never did go away. When Ed was in the third grade, he was telling his older sister Susan, you know, the one that tried to kill him, that he was his teacher's favorite student. And being the asshole that she was, she taunted him by saying, ooh, why don't you kiss her? And Kemper replied that he couldn't kiss her because if he did, 
he'd have to kill her first. Now this kind of talk from a 10 year old is extremely rare and extremely disturbing. Kemper already knew by the age of 10 that he was a full-blown necrophiliac and he was very likely masturbating while fantasizing about having sex with dead women at this age. There's simply no other reason for this reply. In fact, Kemper was fascinated by death itself, even when it was his own. His favorite games to play with his younger sister, Alan, was gas chamber and electric chair in which Alan would act out a scenario where she was administering gas into the chamber and Kemper would suffocate and kill over dead and when they were playing the other game, the electric chair game, she would flip a switch to administer voltage to a chair that Ed set up to look like an electric chair and he'd flop and convulse as if he was being electrocuted. This type of behavior usually comes along with suicidal thoughts, but Kemper was never suicidal, not back then. He just wanted to kill everything else. Which brings me to the next part of this horror story, Kemper killing everything else. Once Kemper was released from the Atascadero Mental Hospital when he was 21 years old, he was placed into the care of his mother, Clarnell. His fantasies of having sex with dead women just festered and festered until they popped. He couldn't contain it anymore. For any of you Dexter fans, this was Kemper's dark passenger, an entity within him that made it hard to even breathe if he couldn't kill. Many killers describe this feeling as actual pain and suffering that never goes away. It just gets worse and worse until they finally kill somebody. In the criminology field, this is definitely what we consider as nature and not nurture. You've seen born to kill tattoos, and some people really are, in my opinion, born to do just that. Within two years of being released and deemed safe to re-enter society from so-called professionals, Kemper began a killing spree that lasted almost an entire year. On May 7th, 1972, Kemper picked up two female Fresno State students. They were attempting to hitchhike to Stanford. Their names were Mary Ann Pesci, no relation to Joe, and Anita Lachesa. He shot both girls in the head and then he placed their dead bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy. Kemper stated that he was attracted to these particular ladies because they were clean and seemed to be more upper class and less like the hippie girls that he was usually picking up. Now, here's where things get strange. Just like when Jeffrey Dahmer's first victim was in the back seat, Kemper also gets pulled over for a broken tail light. He has blood in his car, blood on his clothes, and he has two dead girls in the trunk. But the cop just gives him a warning and lets him go. Kemper then took the two Fresno State students back to his house and he took pictures of them while raping their corpses. And finally, he dismembered them and continued to have sex with their severed heads, which I guarantee he has fantasized about while masturbating since he was probably around seven or eight years old or whenever he discovered masturbation. 
To this day, the girls' bodies have not been found. Despite Kemper's cooperation with authorities, the only part of these girls that was ever recovered was Marianne Pesci's skull, which was recovered in the mountains of Santa Cruz, California. As far as I know, the pictures Kemper took were never recovered, but that's just as far as I know. Now, just a few months later, Kemper's next victim was 15-year-old Aiko Koo. On September 14, 1972, Kemper picked up Koo, who was hitchhiking to dance class. He accidentally locked himself out of his own car, and Koo, knowing he was going to do harm to her in some form, actually unlocked the door and let him back into the car. Once she did this, Ed grabbed her by the neck with his ginormous hands and he choked her until she was dead. And then he proceeded to do everything that he did with Pesci and Lachesa's bodies, including using the same methods of disposal for her body. Ed was now becoming very comfortable and he needed more. On January 7, 1973, Kemper picked up 18-year-old Cindy Shaw from the Cabrillo College campus. He shot her in the head, put her in the trunk, waited for his mother to go to bed, carried her corpse up to his room, and he had intercourse with her corpse two times that night, and then when his mother left for work, he put her body into his mother's bathtub and he cut her into six pieces using a power saw. After all of this, he then took all of her body parts to the same areas as his other victims, and he threw her body parts off of a cliff for some reason. Except for what? Can you think of what he kept? Well, of course, he kept her head, so he could make it perform oral sex on him for a few days. He kept her head in his room and he had sex with her head multiple times before finally burying it in the backyard. Specifically, looking up at his mother's bedroom window. Because, and I quote, My mother always wanted people to look up to her. End quote. Just about one month later, on February 5th, 1973, Kemper murdered the last of the co-eds. But these were definitely not the last murders that he committed. While looking for victims on the university campus of Santa Cruz, where his mother Clarinelle worked, he picked up 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Helen Allison Liu. He took them to a remote area, shot them in the head like the others, but only this time he actually decapitated both of them in his car and he carried their headless bodies into the house after his mother went to sleep. He buried their heads just a few days later, right next to Cindy Shaw's, looking up at his mother's window. He kept their bodies in his closet for about a week until they started to decompose. This time he left their dismembered bodies in Eden Canyon. Their remains were found about a month later. All of these murders took place because of Ed's female family members, mainly his mother and older sister. Finally killing women out of hatred for his mother wasn't enough. He had to have the real thing. And on April 20th, 
Yes, for all you potheads, 420, 1973, Kemper finally got the real thing. After his mother came home intoxicated, Kemper walked into her bedroom. It was never clear why. According to Kemper, she said snidely while reading a book, I guess you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. And Kemper replied, no, good night. And then waited for her to go to sleep. After she was clearly sleeping, Kemper attacked his mother with a claw hammer. And then he slit her throat with a penknife. Years and years and years of pent-up hatred for this woman was finally being unleashed. After she was clearly dead, Kemper then decapitated her, he raped her corpse, and basically unleashed the wrath of hell upon his own mother. He put her head up on the fireplace mantle. He threw darts at it. He screamed as loud as he could at it for hours. After he was done screaming at her and doing all this, he then smashed her face in by punching it repeatedly. And then, well then he cut out her tongue and her vocal cords and he put them in the sink. Once they were in the sink, Kemper urinated on them and then tried to dispose of them in the garbage disposal. But the disposal just kept putting them right back into the sink. During interviews, Kemper stated that even the garbage disposal was not strong enough to grind up her vocal cords, being they were so powerful from all the years she spent yelling at him. Now, I will be right back with the final segment and the interview with Ron Earhart after this song from my friend Michael Alexander. Michael wrote this song for his friend that was murdered in San Diego as a result of a hate crime because he was gay. His name was Rob Johnson, and he was allegedly murdered simply because he was a gay man, which I find absolutely disgusting. I don't care what your beliefs are. I don't care what you think of the LGBTQ community. They are people, and they have a right to be who the fuck they want to be. It doesn't affect you. Just let people be people. I encourage everyone to be themselves and do whatever the fuck they want as long as it doesn't affect me. As long as it doesn't affect you. Killing a gay person because they're gay shouldn't be called just a hate crime. It should be called a disgustingly fucking idiot crime. Because you're seriously a fucking idiot if you want to hurt someone just because they think differently than you do. Whether it's religion or sexual preference, just let people be who the fuck they are. Mr. Alexander, I am very sorry about your friend Rob, and I hope he's in a better place. And thank you very much for sending me this song to honor his life and what he meant to you. This is just one tear by Michael Alexander. I will be right back. And please, make sure to stick around for the Ron Earhart interview. It's going to be fucking amazing. That the road we take 
is a road we should be traveling. Who's to say that the road we take is a road we should be on? I can say I knew you. You were a friend of mine. Who's to say that the dreams we dream are but a step from reality? Who's to say that the dreams we dream are but a life that'll never be? I can say I knew you. You were a friend of mine. After Kemper did all of those horrendous things to his own mother, pre and post mortem, he then called her best friend Sally Hallett and he invited her to come over for dinner and a movie. And fortunately for Sally, she took him up on the offer and she came straight over. Once she arrived, Kemper invited her in and as soon as she shut the door behind her, Kemper grabbed her by the neck and he strangled her to death. He didn't really have much choice, being that the house was covered in blood 
and his mother's body and head were just hanging around in different areas. The initial reason that he invited Sally over was to create a makeshift alibi. He was going to tell the police and everybody else that the two had left on a vacation together. Now he didn't rape or behead Sally, which besides his grandparents, makes her the only victim that he didn't do that to. But at this point, Kemper no longer felt the need to really kill anybody. The thrill was gone because he finally got to do what he'd wanted to do since he was a little child, which was kill and mutilate and probably rape his own mother. Kemper then put Sally and his mother and all of her body parts in her closet. And before he left the residence, he left something for the police. Kemper left a note. Here's what that note said word for word. Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete. Gents, just a lack of time. I got things to do. Why he wrote this is anyone's guess. I don't even have an opinion to bore you with. Edmund Emil Kemper was a serial killer that could have been pretty much anything in the world that he wanted to be. He did want to be a police officer, but he was too big. But other than that, he pretty much just wanted to kill everything that was alive, likely out of hatred for his sister, his grandmother, and his mother. Even when he was a child, it seemed like all he wanted to do was kill or die. He was truly a tortured individual that I honestly think never really knew what happiness was. And yeah, if you're thinking that I feel a little bit sorry for Ed Kemper, I do. He's still an evil rotten piece of fuck that never should have even been born, but I do feel sorry for him. He never even had a chance to kiss somebody that was alive, or hold hands, or just be a normal person. After killing his mother and her best friend and writing the letter to leave for the police, Kemper took off and drove over a thousand miles nonstop from Santa Cruz, California all the way to Pueblo, Colorado. It was there that he stopped at a payphone. He called the Santa Cruz police and he confessed. But being that they didn't know about the murders of his mother and her friend yet, they thought it was a prank call and they actually hung up on him. He later called back and asked for one of the detectives that he knew from the cop bar the jury room and he confessed to him. The police then found the bodies and they went to Colorado to retrieve a very tired and weary Kemper. When the police asked Kemper why he turned himself in, he stated that, and I quote, the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time." End quote. Once in jail, Kemper tried to puncture the main artery in his wrist on two different occasions, once rendering him unconscious. He should have shot himself while he was driving to Colorado. I mean, he did have three guns and almost 200 rounds of ammunition with him. Edmund Emil Kemper was also known as the co-ed killer, the co-ed butcher, the ogre of Aptos, the mad titan, and Big Ed. But I just call him Kemper. 
the man that I'll never understand no matter how many interviews I watch or how many things that I read. I do know this though, he's never been happy and misery does love company. Kemper is now 74 years old. He killed a total of 10 people and if he ever finds a way to actually kill himself, he'll likely change that number to 11. Until next time, always remember, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean that they're not really out to get you. And now, without further ado, let's talk to the most amazing tattoo artist on the fucking planet, at least in my opinion. And if you don't believe that that's my opinion, you've never seen me before. Okay, so we are gonna call Ron Earhart right now, and I'm gonna hope that the dogs don't actually bark this time, because that's really crazy. What's up? Okay, okay, I think I got you good here. Okay, cool. So we'll just get right to it. So for any of you that do not know Ron Earhart because you've been under a fucking rock or something, he is an internationally known and respected tattoo artist that mainly specializes in biomechanical tattoos, usually big pieces such as arms, backs, and whole bodysuits, right? Now, and uh, how many bodysuits to this day do you think that you've done? Yeah, if you're talking the entire body. Yeah, exactly. Some people come to me with, like, they have a sleeve done, and then I do the rest of their body. So I can't really call that a complete bodysuit, but uh, I do have one guy who's gotten all his work by me, and we are pretty close to completion, and then I have another guy who is, uh, he had a sleeve, he's getting lasered off, but we're almost done with his full body suit. And once his laser is finished, then we'll go ahead and do that sleeve and he'll be 100% my work, so. Very nice, and, and, and just so we don't forget, go ahead and plug your, your IG and like anything that you would want people to go on to see, your, to see your stuff. My IG is just my name with no space, so it's Ron Earhart, that's R-O-N-E-A-R-H-A-R-T with no spaces in it and I should pop up. Yeah, so don't make the mistake a lot of people do. They think it's Earhart, like H-E-R-T. It's 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 H-A-R-T, so everything else sounds yeah. pretty much this, like it's supposed to. There's no E in the in the heart part. It's uh, not H-E-A-R-T, it's H-A-R-T. Right, yeah. It's like a Amelia Earhart, same family. Really, so she's like a distant, yeah. she's a distant relative of yours. Yes, she is. <laughs> that's, that's fucking cool, that's really cool. Crazy, so, right? Yeah, so one thing I, I've never asked you, okay, so I've probably done maybe 30, 35 uh, sessions with you all together since I've known you. Okay, so like when I write songs, it's like in the middle of the night and it just like shoots in my head. You don't have that luxury of doing a tattoo when you when you feel inspiration. You have to fucking do it when you, when you have to do it because you have people flying all around the world to see your ass. So it's like, how do you come up with, say somebody wants something, you have a short time to do it. How does your imagination process work when you're looking at a piece of flesh on somebody and you're like I need to turn this into a magical work of art typically people book with me a good amount ahead of time and when their appointments get closer I'll end up you know brainstorming and sometimes I'll do like a thumbnail sketch just to have an idea of what direction I want to go with it before they show up that's so I'm not empty-handed when they show up but you know mainly what you have to do is get in the zone you know like when they do show up and the rubber hits the road and you have to draw on them you know you have to get in the zone it's almost like you have to let go sometimes i feel like 
I'm not even in control of what I'm drawing. Something else is coming through me. I'm just the conduit, you know? Exactly. That's that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, I think what you and I do is a lot, is very similar, but it's completely 100% different because the mediums are different and stuff like that. But they're both art. They both, like, just come from fucking nowhere because I've literally woke up before and had songs written that I didn't write, that I know for a fact I didn't write. It just it just yeah. was, it intercepted into my head. So it's just like, but exactly. um, so, so you kind of go into that zone more once, once the person is in front of you and you're drawing yeah and that's it's also the connection i have with the person too there's like a chemistry and so like some people it's super easy to draw on them it just flows out of me no problem and some people i'm like racking my head but the main thing that i know that i have to do is not think about it too much and allow that outside influence to come in and like i said i'm just the conduit i'm just the middleman there's something else coming from outside of me and i'm applying it to this person you know right right no because i mean one of the things that i've always like really admired and if i'm i show people your ig all the fucking time like if, if anybody comments on my arms or whatever i'm like you know if you want to see some real shit follow this guy and uh i just i've always just been in awe with your imagination and uh like you said it's it's maybe not even coming from your brain it might it might be coming just from the atmosphere and the energy and all that stuff which is which is an awesome fucking thing yeah it's like a it's like a weird flow like you might have a couple you know major shape ideas for the design but then you need to like kind of let go you know maybe maybe get those marked out yeah let go and allow what else needs to be there to like just naturally come in you know yeah like you said you can't overthink it it's 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 a lot like music yeah it becomes stale and it just becomes stiff you know and i honestly i mean there's not too big of a separation between what you're doing and what i'm doing just the medium really yeah as far that's all it is really yeah especially when you're in you're talking the writing process you know it's a lot different than when you're just reproducing something that's been there exactly and by the way, your your band is called Symbiotic, correct? Yeah, Symbiotic. Symbiotic, Symbiotic. So it's S Y M B I O T I C. Kind of like a probiotic, but a symbiotic. Yeah, Sy- it's but pretty symbi- much like you know what <laughs> Carnage and and Venom are. You know, like a symbiotic like relationship between maybe an alien and its host, or you know, exactly like a like a parasite and its host, but the parasite yeah. actually benefits you and doesn't kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so the song that we heard was called The Unknown. Do you want to like mention anything about that song or does it kind of speak for itself? It does kind of speak for itself. We wrote this this album came out or it's just an EP. It came out in 2016. We don't even play these songs anymore because we've moved on to new music, but uh yeah, I mean the lyrics were written by our vocalist uh Chris and you know, I haven't really dove down the hallway of how he came up with these lyrics uh and i don't even know exact like direction he was taking it but yeah i mean what's the overall meaning of the song to you like when you play it what do you what do you feel like what do you think the song's about uh like what's your interpretation of it basically the the title kind of says it all you know it's kind of like mystical yeah exactly like the things we don't know about you know like uh 
like yeah. 99% of the things in the world. <laughs> yeah, and we, I would like to, with Ron on, I would like to plug, I, I, I've plugged Crow777 on, on my show a couple times, and uh, it's one of our favorite podcasts. Um, if you don't listen to Crow777, please check that out. We we get a lot of good information from that, and it's a very true, honest show. Ron yeah, actually turned me on to that. It's a C R R. O W seven 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 radio.com. Yeah, if you if you want the the website and they say that, but you could just bring up Crow Seven Seven on the on the podcast, it'll come up. But if you want the website, C double R O W seven 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 at radio.com, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, pay for the second hour because it's definitely it's definitely worth it. Good shit. Now okay. um, we're gonna be playing the song as soon as we're done with the interview. We're gonna be playing the song Fire Meets Flesh. Any anything about that, or does that pretty much speak for itself? That is kind of another one that speaks for itself. Like literally, me being the drummer, I have so much to focus on uh, drum-wise that I rarely get a chance to pay attention to the direction of the lyrics and yeah. the fact that most of it is unlegible. <laughs> yeah, it's death metal, you know. Yeah, it's not but, Elton uh, John. That's for sure. It's it's, it's definitely it's it's definitely real actually authentic death metal ron knows what fucking death metal is he's a death metal drummer he's a fucking badass drummer i would really like to talk about your your kit for just a second because anybody that knows anything about ron knows that everything that ron owns is stock he does not customize anything so, <laughs> and i'm being like sarcastic as fuck so just real quick like what what are you playing and, and what have you done to it as far as your, your kit right now i probably a few years back i picked up a tama star and this is walnut with the japanese sen wrap and beautiful uh, by the way yeah, it's a beautiful kit, and I, uh, you know, I have a uh, Gibraltar rack on it, and then I'm running mainly vinyl symbols right now. But that will change here pretty soon. I'm gonna switch over to Peisty. You know, it is it is a six piece with a snare. So like, I basically bought a shell kit from Tama, which is pretty much a five piece. It's just the bass drum, right? Two rack toms and a floor tom, and then I ordered a extra bass drum and a eight inch tom like rack tom to add to the kit and then you know all the hardware i've kind of collected over the years so it's been with me for you know probably 10 12 years you know most of it let's talk about your shop so 11th dimension i've been hearing about it for at least five years about like you were gonna you know talking about open it you thought about different places and stuff you finally came out with a a place that you liked that you kind of redid the whole entire place you basically gutted it right yeah i mean it was kind of gutted you know the cement floors were old and you know kind of grimy and the walls were filled with holes and my electrician came through and he ended up, uh, you know, adding a bunch of conduit, stripping out. Now that's the gentleman know. I met the other day when, when I was when I was with you when I when I was at the shop. Yeah, he's the one who came in, and actually, that's who I'm tattooing today. Super nice guy. Yeah, super yeah, nice guy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, the shop is the shop is beautiful, and for anybody that doesn't know, the shop is is located in San Jose, California, and uh, you can call the shop to usually you know book out with other people, and sometimes with Ron, but Ron does have people come and sit in and stuff like that. But Ron's a little bit out there. It's going to be what a couple years if anybody wanted to wanted to set up anything with you right now. Yeah, typically I try to keep it at about you know five to six months from scheduling your consultation. 
consultation, then we do the appointment. It's about five to six months out, but oh, that's not once, too we bad, do, once we do schedule you appointments, I'm going to make them consecutive to where you don't have to wait that long in between appointments. You'll just be, you know, a month away. And that's typically the schedule time for tattoos. You know, once a month is usually what people schedule with me. Yeah, as long as they do it in the beginning, because you, you do book yeah. out fast. I remember one time you were, you were booked out almost two years. Yeah, it's uh, that was when I didn't really have as much control with my schedule as I did. Right, know. right. So You're still working like, under Adrian, yeah. Now, when people schedule with me, what I do is, you know, I schedule them like five or six appointments, depending on what they're getting done. If they're doing a sleeve, yeah, let's, let's schedule five or six appointments out, and then I can uh, keep them in the books to try to complete their piece, you know, that the, they're doing. But the the initial wait time is going to be a little longer. But after that, you don't have, you know, you'll you'll be in the books consecutively. Yeah, and I will put a uh, in the show notes. I will I will put a, a link to the shop too. At what age? Because I remember talking to you when you were like in your in your early twenties when we first met. I, I think it was about maybe 25, 30 years ago. And you are a very unique human being. And I am not saying that because you're a good fucking tattoo artist. What age do you remember like thinking this is what I'm going to do for a fucking living and I am going to kill it? Well, started messing around with tattooing when I was about like 13, 14 years old. It wasn't till I was actually about, like, tattooing. 15. So needles and everything, not just drawing. Yeah, not just drawing. Okay, I was actually okay. tattooing people when I was about 13, 14 years old. With homemade equipment, you know, I was making stuff from scratch, you know, guitar strings and cassette right. player motors, and, you know, like... Basically the, in prison, but not in prison. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then it was probably a year or so went by, and... You know, I kept getting friends of mine say, hey, you can make a living doing this. And it clicked, you know, when I was about like 15, I realized like, oh, I can actually make a living doing this. And I basically was like, OK, let's, you know, let's kind of pursue this. I had always known I was going to be an artist. I didn't know what medium I was going to do, but I knew that I was going to be an artist of some sort. Now, I have a couple of questions just real fast from my listeners. Uh, One person wrote, and I'm not going to name anybody because I don't do that on the show. One person wrote, ask him how he met Nate. Now, your first shot, that's who you were working with, and I will not say Nate's last name because I will just butcher it, but uh, Nate is a tattoo artist, and you opened up Acme Tattoo on Blackstone and Fresno. How did you guys meet, and why did you decide to uh, to start the shop there, particularly? Well, I can tell you his name is Nate Banuelos. Banuelos, um, okay. And yeah, so that's a you don't butcher it. Yeah. Um, and well, we met uh, for the first time at a tattoo convention called uh, Ink Slingers Ball, and it was like one of the biggest tattoo conventions for its time because back in the day, they only you know the United States had like two or three tattoo conventions a year as opposed to now there's like five a weekend you know and this was in 1995 we went to ink slingers wall we you know i set up my booth he set up his booth you know like the day before and i was walking around and i saw his booth and i was like he wasn't there but i was like oh my god this guy's stuff is amazing and apparently he did 
the he exact really is same good. thing. When he saw my booth, that's how we met. Were both of you just using your names? Yeah, and mine was just Ron Earhart. Okay, so. okay, okay. I just didn't yeah. know if you guys were like with, with a shop at the time or like you guys were like under... No, we both owned our own shops at that point. So he owned his shop and then the name for my shop, I didn't use that either. It was just... You know, when I went to the tattoo convention, it was you. The following day at the tattoo convention, like after we had set up, like he he came over to my booth. I was tattooing, and he was like, like, hey man, I love your work. You know, I'd love to get tattooed by you. And I realized he was the person that I was looking at his booth the, the previous day. And I you and, never you never met that day at all. You I remember you saying he wasn't there, but you never even got to meet him that day. Well, yeah. Um. So it was like a Thursday, and then so the Friday is when I met him. Most tattoo conventions are, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, you know, we tattooed all weekend. And during the show, we had talked a bunch and said, hey, let's let's meet up after this. You know, my cousin lived in the L.A. area. So I was like, he'll let us tattoo at his place. Let's tattoo each other. So we went back and tattooed each other. And, you know, after the show, that this was Monday. And uh, ever since then, we've been like brothers, you know. And that's a gay story, by the way. You know how you guys like went and tattooed <laughs> each other and stuff like that. No, that that's really cool. That that is a fucking. I mean, that's that. I'm glad that somebody sent that question in because I wouldn't have asked that question. And that I've always, I've never known that. I got to meet both of you pretty much at the same time through Steve Garcia, who was playing with I Madman, and the, fell in love with your work. And you know, then I had you do. I had the I had you do a sleeve. And I mean, it's it's. I say it's the first sleeve when I'm around you. You'll say it's the first sleeve, but we we don't really remember but all i know is back then like the people weren't getting fucking really sleeved unless you were in prison it was more like you were just doing a lot of pieces on people yeah exactly honestly i do feel like your sleeve was the first sleeve i've ever done and that is a very very big honor thank you so much when did you first see biomech and was as soon as you saw it did you say that's my shit growing up i realized this is like the first introduction to Biomech for me was watching the movie Aliens. Not the first one, but the second one was like littered with Biomech. That was Geiger stuff, if I remember right. Yes, yes. Okay, H. okay. Geiger. Geiger, yeah. His movie sets and everything, like that attracted me a lot. I was always into sci fi. And then when I first started tattooing, you know, obviously was picking up magazines left and right, and I saw people doing this artwork as tattoos and it blew my mind i was like oh my god that's what i want to do no matter what but but i knew that i needed to learn how to tattoo right i couldn't just jump into this style without learning the fundamentals and everything that goes along with applying a design on the skin and doing a good tattoo doing the art you want to do and being able to make a tattoo a solid tattoo so right right and i remember you studying like the anatomy and stuff like that when you when you first did the sleeve you went off a lot of where my muscles were where my bones were where things were and stuff like that a lot of a lot of people probably get the impression that you just draw a cool design on somebody and that's that's not how it's done no no not at all you any body part that I'm working on, I'm definitely going with the anatomy and the flow of the anatomy. And I want to make it look functional. I want to make it look like it belongs on you or it is you. It's a part of you or it's overtaken you. Totally, you know, totally. You, you yeah. transform people for life. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, after 
probably I would say like six, seven years of doing anything, you know, tattoo wise, I started. But in the background or, you know, behind the scenes, I had always been working on biomech, but I wasn't at the point to where I could like confidently tattoo it on somebody until right you know once once it clicked over i realized like okay now it's time for me to start you know i know how to tattoo i know how to apply a tattoo now it's time for me to start pulling this artwork into my career base you know i didn't want to be a jack of all trades i wanted to be like a specialized artist you know like someone who specializes in a very like unique style Okay, the next question was was from a girl, and I don't know who she is, but it, but she's asking if you were single, and no, he is not. <laughs> he, he is with a woman named Lisa, and she is a she is a doctor, and she is fucking amazing, and they've had an amazing relationship for a while. Yeah, she is uh, an amazing girl, and yes, she is a doctor. And uh, how long has it been now? What four, four years? Nine nine years. Oh my god! <laughs> and we're actually getting married uh, in. Uh, October of 2024. Congratulations. That is fucking awesome, Ron. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I've been around you like two or three times in the last few months. I didn't even know that. But I'm glad that we're on this show and you're announcing it. So that's awesome. Yeah. Do you ever see yourself retiring? And if you do, what would you like spend your time doing if you ever did retire from tattooing and, and mainly artwork? I'll be honest with you, man. I don't know that I am. I feel like I'll probably be tattooing, you know, probably the day before I go into the ground. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's it's your life. It's not in the plan t- for me to quit tattooing. I've been at this point right now. I'm at about I've been tattooing for about 34 years. And, you know, that's a good portion of my life. Yes, yes. Uh, and you're what, 47, 48 now? You're a couple years I'm younger 47. than me. Yeah, I'll be I'll be 48 early December. Tattooing in the last 34 years has grown leaps and bounds since you began. What advice would you give to any up and coming? And by the way, this is a this is a question from somebody else. This is the last one I'm going to ask. That's not mine. But what would you give to any up and coming tattoo like 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 another Ron Earhart that's really good? They're up and coming. What what advice would you give to anybody, if, if any, if you would even know like how they would get yeah. in the business? I mean, most importantly, I would find somebody you really look up to or a very good tattoo artist that you could possibly get an apprenticeship with i wouldn't have an apprenticeship i had i was too young when i was learning how to tattoo no one would take me i was like 13 14 15 years old like everyone's like get out of here kid like what are you talking about right go tattoo your friends you can't even be in this shop you know you're not old enough but that's what i would look for if I was doing it all over again is I would try to get a proper apprenticeship that's so I could learn the fundamentals and be able to like uh, learn the history and what makes a tattoo a tattoo. It's all too often where people, you know, they'll go to art school and they'll come out of it and then they pick up a tattoo machine and next thing you know, like they're doing these tattoos that aren't going to stand the test of time because they didn't learn from a master before them what makes a tattoo last, what makes a tattoo a tattoo. So like art is great. Like there's nothing wrong with, you know, having going to art school and learning 
you know, lighting and shading. And most importantly, you gotta, you gotta be able to separate them in the beginning. You gotta be able to understand what makes a tattoo a tattoo. And you can have the art off onto the other side, you know, where you're doing your artwork. And then what's gonna make you a very good tattoo artist, like a successful tattoo artist, is when you take those and you merge them after you learn how to tattoo. Yeah, you almost have to, in the beginning, you have to keep them separate because if you try to pull those things together too soon, it's a disaster. You know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna make a good tattoo. You're gonna make something that looks cool, like right when it's finished and it might last a few years, but you know, if you don't have those fundamentals of longevity, then you're, you're doomed. Yeah. It's not gonna happen. I, t- I totally agree. What have you accomplished to where like you were just like, man, I, I, I fucking made it. You know, I, I really, and I know that you're not satisfied with yourself because I don't think you ever will be. I know that you're always going to evolve and get better. But to date, what has been like one milestone in your life to where you were just like, fuck, I never really knew if I was going to accomplish anything like that or, you know, something like that. Like the where you were just like really, really super proud of yourself. I mean, you know, you're right. I'm never going to be happy with anything that I do, but that's what keeps me like improving and like once you get comfortable you just you might as well just lay it down and walk away you know because once i started getting people coming to me for the style that i wanted to pursue was where i thought like okay i'm on the right track you know right i i know that this is what i want to do and now people are uh seeking me out to get this style and from around the world yeah i mean that's a that's a pretty big fucking deal you know it doesn't allow me to get comfortable, but it definitely lets me know that I'm on the right path. How do you deal with the stress from people that are coming from around the world? Because I could only imagine, like, if you're having a bad day, something is going on with you, you know, maybe you got a fucking bellyache or, or whatever, and you got somebody flying in from Japan. By the way, for anybody that doesn't know, Ron is completely sober. He doesn't drink or, or anything. How do you deal with that stress? Is it meditation? I mean, what, 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 do, you, what do you do to make sure that you don't just flip the fuck out? Uh... You know, it's all about preparation, I think, you know. Say I have an appointment tomorrow that I need to be prepared for. It's about, like, getting everything ready ahead of time, even if it's just in my head. When I show up for that appointment, I'm mentally prepared, you know. And so, yeah, I would love to do meditation. I do go outside of, you know, out in my backyard every day, and I set my feet on the ground and it's what's called earthing you know i i get that natural you know electro or you know the 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 earth like goes through your body so i've tried to do that every day because one of the things you know this is off topic but you know we wear rubber soled shoes and that keeps us from grounding to the earth yes right and so like most people never touch earth you know they just don't ever get that electricity in their body that is coming from the earth and that good energy one of the things that i do yeah, get your yeah. feet in the dirt, get your feet in the yeah. sand, like just touch yeah, the fucking ground. Time, you know, spend some time touching barefoot to dirt or grass or, you know, it, it really helps. It also lowers your blood pressure because what that does is energy field goes around each red blood cell 
and creates a barrier that so your blood doesn't like goop together it almost like separates your red blood cells look into it it's, yeah, it's definitely really amazing i do it pretty much every day and i used to have really bad anxiety like where i'd have panic attacks and stuff like that and since i've been doing this one thing alone i don't have that anymore now, you've made a lot of life life changes, and uh, we, we are coming to an end here. I, I know that you do have to get going. Um, you've made a lot of life changes, and I think that a lot of that has came from, like, Crow 7-7, learning up things on, on your own and stuff like that. If you looked back at the Ron Earhart 20 years ago, what's one thing that you would tell you that, hey, you need to stop doing this or start doing this or something like that that's just been completely life-changing? There's so many. Um well, you, you can give me a couple, like, examples. I mean, like what you were just yeah. talking about with grounding and stuff like that. What, what, what other, like, things have you done that has just changed your life? I think I think most importantly is getting all the toxic chemical products out of my life, you know? So even from, like, detergent that you wash your clothes in to, like, the, the clothes you wear itself, you know? Like, I try to stay away from synthetics. Uh, I definitely only use like natural soaps. You know, the toothpaste I use doesn't have fluoride in it. Yeah, me, t- um, me too. I'm totally against I, fluoride. I use a shower filter that gets rid of all the chlorine and fluoride and all that stuff. But every little thing is going to put you further forward in the right direction. You know, uh, where I'm only eating whole organic food. I only drink distilled water. Um, a lot of people say, well, there's no minerals and stuff like that. You can add like fulvic minerals and stuff like that to the distilled water. We could have a whole show on this. Totally, you know? like, <laughs> 100,000%. But yeah, we, we I, I know you need to go. Um, okay, so I, no problem. out of all the stuff that you have acquired and stuff, and I don't mean monetary stuff. I, don't know, I do not mean value at all. If you were able to keep one possession out of all the stuff that you have, and I don't... By the way, I don't ask anybody else this question. I just know you have a lot of stuff that you've customized, that you really like, that, you, that you've that you poured yourself into. What is your prized possession as far as something that's material? Hmm. My drum set that I'm using right now. That's, that's good stuff. Who do you think has the most talent that you've witnessed as far as tattoo artists go out there that you've just been, this person has it all. They have the visions, the shit they come up with is, is awesome. It's not just one style or whatever. I mean, like who, who do you think's the most talented tattoo artist out there? That's I know that's a hard that's a question. Really hard one. That's a How about you give me the top three? Because there's so many people that I feel like are amazing. I'm gonna name two. I would say like my all-time favorite would be Philip Liu. He does like a lot of like kind of like Japanese style, but it's his own spin on it. And I would say probably one of the world's best tattoo artists right now that all of us love would be Steve Moore. Okay, so my final question for you, Mr. Earhart. How did you actually ask Lisa to marry you? So we went to a metal show in Oakland and it was a band called Death Grave who are, you know, a handful of my friends that are in the band and, you know, like pretty much in the middle of the pit, I like kneeled down and asked her to marry me. Oh my God, that is fucking great. Jesus, that was worth the, that was worth the whole fucking interview right there. Oh my god, that's fucking awesome. Did she just completely freak the fuck out? She was she like screamed yes and like 
we were like, let's do it. And she's like, yes, yes. Oh, I'm my like, God, dude. I got a fucking tear coming out of my eye right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm fucking so happy for you, Ron. Of course That's... I had to do it at a metal show, you know. Well, I knew that it was going to be something. I mean, you don't do anything fucking average or normal at all in your life. So it's like, well, how did he, like I said, I didn't expect anything cliche or any shit like that or anything expensive. I just figured... Yeah. What did he what did he conjure up to, to do that? And that is fucking perfect. That and I'll is, be honest with you, it was completely spontaneous. I had no plan. That was my next it. question. It did just, you plan on I doing it? I was in the moment and I looked at her. She's at a metal show. She goes to all the metal shows with me, right? And right. She's at a metal show with me and I'm just like, I fucking love this girl so much. And it was spontaneous and I just was I didn't even think about it. It it was like something came over me and I just did it. Like it it wasn't planned. It wasn't, you know, I, I feel like that even makes it better, you know. That's like a better story than me like planning something out and taking her somewhere special. Totally. You know, like, yeah, like, like it's like you draw on tattoos. I mean it was like something just shot in your fucking head and was like, Hey, this yeah, this totally. is your soulmate, man. Like like take care of this shit. And I yeah. and I believe you one hundred percent on the spontaneousness because I remember asking you if this was the one and you know, I've known you for a long motherfucking time. So it's like yeah. I remember that I've never heard you talk about anybody that you've ever dated in the past or anything the way that you talked about Lisa and I said is is she the one are you are you gonna marry her and you're just like you know we'll see what happens you know we're just taking it day by day and (laughs) stuff like that so i mean like nine years later here you are you know proposing at a metal show and that's fucking awesome and one quick last question uh what what is your favorite band like if you had to listen to one band i know there's a lot of bands you like but like say you had like one band that you could listen to who's who's your favorite overall And you can say two if you need to. Man, I would say, you know, as far as my favorite overall band, I would say, well, I'm going to give you two overall favorites, and I would say Tool and Deftones. You know, it's not even death metal, you know, but they they do it for me. They're, like, my favorite. Uh, Now, as far as death metal goes, I would say uh, Deeds of Flesh is probably one of my favorite uh, I remember you playing bands. them for me. Yeah, their guitar is fucking insane. Yeah, totally. He he passed a little while. Did back. he really? Oh, that sucks. He was yeah, fucking. Yeah. He was good. I mean, I'm not like a death yeah, metal yeah, player totally. or anything, but I I know talent, and that guy was fucking good. Well, anyway, you have tattoos to do, Ron Earhart. Yeah. I really want to thank you for being on this show and slumming with me. His uh, his shop is Eleventh Dimension, and that is in San Jose, California. And uh, what is the website for that, Ron? It's basically Eleventh Dimension Tattoo Arts com okay 11th dimension and that's spelled out by the way that's not 11 th that's 11th with an e 11th dimension tattoo arts.com and uh, as far as ig he's got a great ig i've i love like he's probably my favorite person to fucking follow in the world his ig just this look up ron earhart earhart says e-a-r-h-a-r-t and look at some of the shit this guy's doing because it'll blow your fucking mind it is insane and this is his song fire meets flesh thank you guys